Hello, everyone, and welcome to the round six edition now of Bombercast for 2023. I'm your regular co-host, The Grizz, and for the first time in a few weeks, I have my other regular co-host here, The Bonts, fresh off another win. Bonte, you must be happy. I am extremely happy, and yes, it is the first time we've got together for a while, I think. Before the St Kilda game might have been the last time because then we, then I had Owen and, and you had uh, Schmutt, was it last week? Yeah, it was a good week to have a Melbourne supporter on. I, sp- I think we spent half the time talking about how good Melbourne were and what a waste of time that turned out to be. Yeah, well, I'd just like to point out that in the uh, margins thread, I did tip the Bombers by 25 points. So if Whoa. you want to start calling me Nostradamus, um, <laughs> by all means, go nuts. I actually had the margin right. I picked Melbourne by 27, just had the wrong team. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. I was close to not really at all. Um, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched the game, sorry for the spoilers, but Essendon did beat the mighty Melbourne Football Club 104-77 to in what was a... A pretty good quality game until the rain set in basically halfway through the third quarter. Essendon kicked out to about a seven-goal lead towards the end of the third, and Melbourne just weren't able to peg it back in the conditions. Bond, this this is a really good win, and it's because our other three wins this year have come against teams that, let's face it, aren't going to be very good um, for 2023, and we're starting to get a lot of the, yeah, but what does the schedule say about the Bombers? Um, I think this win, to some extent, is unequivocal and, and people quibble about whether Melbourne were switched on or whatever. The reality is they're a good team and uh, we went out there and beat them on effort, which is pleasing. Yeah, I, I must admit I had a bit of a chuckle to myself because on the main board this week, or actually, sorry, last week, wasn't this week, this week they've been unsighted. But last week a Carlton fan was sort of laughing because Essendon, you know, oh, they've only beaten Hawthorne, they've only beaten the Suns, they've only beaten GWS. And my comment at the time was, well, we, we can't all draw with a, uh, can't all draw with Richmond, beat an underman Geelong and, you know, GWS and North. And then obviously Carlton turned up on Thursday night and got absolutely smacked. So um, I, I must have, and then we turned up and beat Melbourne. So it was a little bit of a, a <laughs> laughing moment for me on the main board. And um, yeah, no, the Carlton fans obviously haven't turned up. But you're right, it was a really good win and it was a great team win. And it's I, I think it's been said a lot this week. We haven't had a good team win in a while. I think if I was going to say a, a good team win, you'd, you know, you'd probably go back to to when Bomber and, and, and Hurdy first took over and we beat Geelong in 2000 and I want to say 2011 I think we we knocked Geelong off and that was a really good team win but other than that trying to pick a a, a game where the whole side just really turned up maybe Melbourne 2016 when obviously everyone was suspended other than that it's hard to find a really good team win and it's been really hard to find a good team win when it actually matters because it's been such a long time since we've beaten a, a top team, I think, when it actually matters early in the season as opposed to sneaking one halfway through the year. Yeah, and I think what you said about it being a team win is really really close because you can tell that the win on the weekend was two things. It was system and it was effort. We, we clearly went in with a game plan of how to play Melbourne and, and Schmutt and I talked last week about how if we set up at the stoppage and then just dump it down the line, their interceptors are going to just keep picking us off. Now, they didn't have Lever, but they still had May and they still had Petty who turned into an intercept machine when Harrison Jones was subbed off halfway through that third quarter. And what I thought was really interesting was to see that the effort was up. I think I'm looking at the top 10 tacklers from the game. Seven of them are bombers. We didn't play into the hands. There was a lot of forward handball change, which we can get to a bit later. And the system set up 
in a way which were intercepting everything which was great so a team win is a really good way of putting it and, and more than just you know team wins it was a win for effort and in that third and fourth quarter it was just about sort of putting your body on the line and wet with the football and you know we've <laughs> as fans watched this team turn to water um if you'll pardon the pun in wet weather football and to see them basically out sort of physical melbourne in those conditions when melbourne's known as that sort of big you know tough midfield was sort of surprising if anything yeah and pointing at the tackle numbers is a really good way of i think emphasizing how much of a team win it was because as you said we do have the majority of the large number of tackle winners on the ground but if you look at it right so setterfield obviously led the way setterfield and snelling led the way with 10 so they did i mean setterfield had his 19 snelling had his 11 kids girls so they didn't really get a ton of the ball, but they did oh. their bit through through tackling. You know, Jai Corbell had 10 touches, but he laid six tackles. You know, you look at that sort of stuff and you go, well, okay, some of these guys didn't get their hands on the pill, but they're working hard the other way. And that, and that means that, you know, you, our, our merits, our parishes and our shields can go out and get the 30 touches because they're able to be the offensive weapons that we know with a defensive backup from everybody else around them, which is what you need as a football side. I mean, you, you do have your Zach Merritts who clearly ran both ways and, you know, he, he laid seven tackles alongside his 35 disposals. But a player like a Darcy Parrish and a Dylan Shield, who, who while they do get their hands dirty defensively, it's not their it's not their one wood. So if you can have a couple of players who their defensive efforts are their one wood, it just allows Shield and Parrish to go to their one wood, which is to get the ball and get it forward. Yeah, and we've just raved about tackle numbers. Tackles aren't everything. Parrish only had the one, but I think Parrish, is, Parrish was probably our best player on the field, I would argue. You know, his one would is his cleanliness of the ball in hand, and he was just a cut above everyone. Um, I, I just want to touch on set of third really quickly. I, I'm I'm fast believing he might be the buy of the season AFL-wide. Now, some people from other clubs might argue against this, but you had the 10 tackles. He, he tagged Clayton Oliver and kept him to three disposals in the first quarter. Now, Oliver ended up with 41, but there were 26 handballs, and there was 400, just 400, just shy of 450 metres gained from 41 disposals. And that checked out. I don't know if you paid much attention, but I was paying attention to how much ball Oliver was getting. There was a lot of, you know, fling handballs, cheap one-two handballs over the top. He didn't get a, I don't think he got a coach's vote, which probably tells you the quality of the 41 he got. And I just think that the team's willingness to buy in defensively but is great. But Will Setterfield's sort of been a revelation in that role. And he, we've talked earlier in the year about him slotting into that big defensive midfielder role, which allows Shield and Parrish and Merritt to uh, focus on what they do well and then buy in defensively as a group. I just, I continue to be amazed that he's slotted in almost so seamlessly into our midfield and become, you know, really noticeably important. When he wasn't out there, I think he hurt his shoulder halfway through the second quarter. Oliver got off the chain and, yeah, he's already such a vital part of our team. So Clayton Oliver had 20 disposers in the last quarter. So he had 20 disposers when the game's done. I mean, yeah. so so that's how I look at it. I look at it and go, when the game was on the line, Clayton Oliver was nowhere to be seen. Okay, the game was done, and then he ran around and got his 20 cheapies. We have a super coach keeper league on the, on the board, as, as most of, I've mentioned it before. And on the Discord chat for that, I think somebody said that, you know, don't worry, Clayton's going to get off the chain here, and, and he'll still find a way to get his cheap touches, and he didn't last quarter. So you're right, Setterfield definitely shut him down. And I'd also agree that Darcy Parrish was, was best um, on the ground. And despite his low tackle numbers, the very first contest that Melbourne won out of the middle at the start of the game. So they, they got the ball, they kicked it down long. It went down there. I think it was uh, McGrath 
picked the ball up off the deck and handballed it, and he handballed it to Darcy Parrish. And the very first thing he did in that game was we lost the contest. He got on his bike, turned around and busted his ass to be the, the outlet for the handball from one of our defenders. So I think that in itself underlines what his mindset is at the moment. Yeah, and the midfield, uh, you know, Cal Toomey called it Brad Ball on AFL.com. Yeah, clearly... you've, seen that, you've seen that article today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, the, the play on words from Baz Ball. Uh, I think whatever the system is, the players are buying it, and that's the fundamental difference from this, this year to last year is that clearly whatever the coach is putting down, the players are picking up, and I don't know if what – you know, Brad Scott's preaching is any more complicated or better than what Ben Rutten or John Werfold taught in the past. But clearly Brad Scott's got a way of selling it to them in a way which they want to do it, which is two-thirds of the battle when it comes to being an AFL head coach is getting buy-in from everyone. So credit to Brad Scott for getting guys like Parrish and Shield, who historically haven't looked interested in defending, to buy-in in that way. And it was it wasn't just defending in terms of tackles number, tackle number. When the ball was on the ground there to be one, you know, Merritt, Parrish, Shield, Cedarfield, they're all crashing in. Um, if Melbourne guys were getting the balls under extreme physical pressure, a lot of spilled ball in the wet, and they just played the conditions perfectly. And before the conditions got sour, I thought the big difference in the game was this, you know, surprising reincarnation of Simon Madden and Paul Salmon that we had in our team on the weekend with Sam Draper and Andrew Phillips. Now, they kicked five goals between them. That might not ever happen again. But it's, to quote um, the A-team, it's great when a, t- a plan comes together. And they absolutely worked Grundy over on the weekend. And Scott clearly saw a weakness in Brad Scott in Brady Grundy's defence and a, a deficiency in Lever being out and there being no noted interceptor outside of Stephen May and went to work in setting that up. And it'll be really interesting to see how that works going into next week. And you'd imagine it should work again because obviously Collingwood don't have a ruck. But it is... Amazing to me that something like this, which is such a basic tactic, which is your rest, your your ruckman rests forward, and when you've got the ball, your ruckman runs forward. I mean, that's old school football. I think at times that we have become obsessed with having players on the field in positions that can do it all. So you you want your forward that can you know, lay tackles and chase down players and, and be a pressure once the ball hits the ground. Obviously, you know Draper can do that a little bit. Source not so much. But at the end of the day, if you're a big target down there and you're either plucking the mark or you're bringing the ball to ground, which is what Draper and Phillips are doing at the moment, and I don't really think it matters who's on them. I think they can do it regardless because that's all you want is them to create a contest. You can then build your pressure through other players. And so you're right in saying that they probably won't kick five again, but it's such a weird thing to me that such an, a tactic that was used for decades went out of vogue and now Brad Scott's brought it back and we're all sort of marvelling at how well he's done. But it, it's not nothing new. So it, it does make me laugh. But as I said, having two big blokes down there that can at least bring the ball to ground, obviously that means that, you know, you've, your Will Snellings, your Kyle Langford, your Archie Perkins, your Jai Menzies and whoever else you want to pick, they come into the game and, and that's where we get our pressure from. So, you know, and, and I think we at the moment have a very, very good handful of medium forwards. So I, I think it's it's something that will just keep working until, I mean, until it doesn't, I suppose. But I, I just can't see a game where that, where that sort of game plan just gets completely wiped out because I'm not too sure how often you're going to have a side that's able to just completely stop a Ruckman from being able to con- contest when the ball goes forward. 
Yeah, it's you've got to have two ruckmen that can do it, right? So I think it's a bit like the I don't know if you watch much basketball bonds, but it's a bit like how the genuine center um has gone out of basketball in the NBA in the sense that guys that size don't play big anymore and they all want to be the play the more skilled roles. And it's rare to have a big guy that can do the big guy things um, because teams are just generally playing smaller. And I tend to find that anyone that's close to 198-ish centimetres tall, they all turn into key forwards if they're semi-athletic. And now it's rare that teams will have two genuine rucks that can go forward and go back and intercept, which Draper and Phillips both can. Melbourne are trying to do it with Grundy and Gorn. Obviously, Gorn's injury has stopped that. Geelong found a, a fascinating workaround with with Blitzarves and um, Stanley last year. To to do it, you have to have the forward craft in your two ruckmen, and I think that's been the biggest revelation: is Flip actually being able to be a really effective forward with his forward craft. And so that makes it helpful. It'll be interesting to see, you know, Collingwood have 10 days to plan for it and they don't know they don't have a ruck. So I, I wonder if it's going to be a bit more by committee and they're going to have a bit of a plan. I don't know if it's going to be as effective. But one thing it does do, I think, is it calls into question whether we need Wiedemann straight into the team. Because structurally, if you sub out Wiedemann for a medium like a stringer, or a Langford, you're right, you do get more forward pressure. And if your Ruckman is able to be that focal point for, you know, five to ten minutes a quarter when he's resting forward, you don't need the extra key, which gives you more flexibility around the ground. So it's an interesting dynamic. Now, Phillips is a career journeyman. He may not do this for the whole year. And in reality, I think we both hope that eventually Nick Bryan develops into that sort of player. But it's just a fascinating watch. And it'll be great to see what happens this week with Sam Wiedemann being available from suspension. Speaking of suspension, the big story out of Sunday Arvo was the news that Merritt, uh, Zach Merritt, our captain, has been ruled out at least at this stage due to a sling tackle, which was graded as, I think, high contact, medium impact and careless conduct. We're going to the tribunal tomorrow. How do you see this going, Bonds? Do you think we're any chance? How important do you think it is for our chances next Anzac Day for Merritt to get off? Oh, well, I mean, Merritt's a freak, so you're not going to, you know, he doesn't play. It's a massive knock against us. And, I mean, he's the, he's the captain and he's he's alongside Darcy Parrish as our best midfielder, isn't he? So, I mean, don't get me wrong, Dylan Shields not that far behind him at the moment with the form he's in, but he's, he's not in their form. So, you know, if he doesn't play, it hurts big time. I mean, it gives does give Ben Hobbs, I suppose, the chance because he's been banging down the door and it seems like that would just be a, a fairly straightforward like-for-like style of player, not quality of player, but style of player because, you know, Ben would just slot into the inside. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen the video that um, has been floating around where the AFL's own example of what a low impact tackle is. It's the, it's an Isaac Heaney tackle on one of our guys. It's it's exactly the same as the Zach Merritt tackle. So I just don't know how it's medium impact. It's just got me completely lost because the medium impact is actually meant to have some form of sling in it. Um, so Jordan, there's a Jordan Degoe tackle which the AFL uses their example, and he clearly slings the bloke. The Isaac Heaney, which is the dump dump tackle, that's their low impact. So I look at that and go, well, how the hell is that? Medium. It just that doesn't make sense. If I was if I was um, the football club, I'd just literally take the two take the two videos, put them up side by side, and go, it's, it's identical. It's exactly what you've told us is low impact. So how can you now say it's medium? 
which I also think means that the whole oh, but they they adjust for potential for injury. Well, yes, they do, but these but they can't tell the clubs at the start of twenty twenty three this is a low impact tackle. Have a low impact tackle occur, and then turn around and say, oh, but actually now we're going to change it to medium because that just defeats the purpose of you know informing the clubs of what of what you want to do and and getting the clubs to prepare players. So I, I think. It will be downgraded to low. I, I I would hope, but you know, it's a bit of a chook lotto the the tribunal, let alone the match review officer. <laughs> it's interesting because um, the, um and, the, and the other thing is, of course, you know, Taylor Adams he got done for a sling tackle and got low impact, and I look at that and I think, well, that was actually probably a bit more um, impactful than than Zach's because there's two players that are clearly holding the player up and, and, the, and it's going to be a ball up. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And Taylor sort of runs from about 10 metres away, puts his arms around him, throws the bloke in the turf. So to me, I reckon that's medium impact. And I think that one week for Taylor Adams makes sense. But you compare it to Zach Merritt's, and as I said, you also look at the, the Isaac Heaney example they sent out. It just doesn't make sense to give Zach that that low impact, or sorry, that medium impact. And as I said, Chuk Lotto, we'll see how it goes. But I am... Quietly confident it'll be low impact, despite John Ralph. I think a few people have been melting about. Yeah, I tend to think that Taylor Adams' suspension and, and Zach Merritt's go hand in hand in the sense that I would expect Collingwood to challenge his, and if both get off, one gets off, the other one will, and one get one. If the suspension remains for Merritt. I think it will remain for for Taylor Adams, and so it'll be really interesting because I think one for one, like Merritt's a better player, but. Adams is really important to that team. So I don't know. It is, it is it's less Chocolato next week for uh, Chocolato tomorrow night with the tribunal. But I tend to think that they've been, I know what the precedent was at the start of the year with the Isaac Heaney example, but they've been going a bit heavier than that to begin with. So I wonder if the AFL is just going to walk in and say, well, here's the ones that you've upheld earlier in the year. So forget your example. It's sort of like you said, what's the point of the, yeah, you know, the example they give at the start of the year. Then, if they're just going to ignore it and do do higher grades, um, the difference I, is that. Sorry, I was just going to say the different. The difference is you, you actually can't use previous examples from the tribunal at the tribunal. It's the most ridiculous system in the world. <laughs> but you can't actually you can't actually walk in. So Essendon can't walk in and say, "Well, you the tribunal did this with this tackle, therefore you have to do the same with with Zach." And the AFL also can't come in and say, well, last week you gave Will Day two weeks for this and it's pretty similar, so we think you should give them two weeks. You know, I've I've never come across a system like it, but precedence, for whatever reason, does not exist at the AFL Tribunal. They're meant to look at each case on its merits, and I put that in air quotes because I'd be amazed if they don't have it in the back of their mind of what they've done previously. Yeah, and they constitute the the panels differently every time, but... At the time, I flinched when I watched it live. And I thought, oh, I hope he's not in trouble there. So I wasn't exactly surprised that he got suspended. It, it, the the argument, like you say, will be trying to get it from medium impact to low. And if they do that, it's a, it's a fine and we're on our way. But I reckon that's touch and go. I, I don't, I, I'm not entirely sure um, we're going to have much luck with that. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on the game uh, before we start Looking ahead to the Collingwood game, we've already sort of started doing that a little bit. But anything you want to touch on the Melbourne win? No, not overly. I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, it was a team win. I think the midfield worked well both ways. I think the two rucks worked really well. And, you know, other than spending the next 15 minutes talking about how wonderful Jordan Ridley is, is there much more we can say about the defence that we haven't said already this year? 
But we could talk about how good Jordan Ridley is for more than the next 10 minutes. Like that guy is He's had absolute... 90% disposal efficiency. He's 90% an... disposal efficiency this year. I will just say he is officially my boy. Um, I picked him up in the my boy draft. At pick, <laughs> uh, I picked him up in the my boy draft at uh, pick 19. A very happy, good value there. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, he's outstanding. And that defense, I will talk briefly on the defense as a general. As a collective, it is an ab- it is absolutely one of those sum is greater than the parts scenario. How they're defending as well as they are. Zerk Thatcher's having his best year of his career so far. Most improved player in the comp. Uh, <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll have that argument again some other day. Um, certainly our most improved and would be in the top five, absolutely. You know, Laverde's found form. Dyson Heppel, I thought he was going to get slaughtered against Melbourne. He looked pretty good. I think the conditions helped. The the game slowed down a fair bit in the second half, which helped Dyson with all due respect to him. Mason Redmond's having a great year. Nick Hines stepped in as a forward, but we've already got him as a back as a backup at all times. The defense is playing really well. And Cole Langford, I think, has found his role as you know, a genuine swing man who's a guy who plays forward, can swing into defense as we needed, and he did that at different points um, on the weekend. Oh, I love it. So what we'll do now is we'll move to Anzac Day. Um, it's my favorite home and away game of the year. Every year I look forward to it. Um, we haven't had much luck in terms of wins and losses over you know, the last 10 to 15 years, but we tend to win the big ones and win when we're not expected. I suppose I'll, I'll ask you first, and I have my own memory in my head, but what to you is the fondest Anzac Day match memory you have? Well, I mean, obviously, it's always hard to go past 2009, you know, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. and and, I, and I'm a big Ricky Dyson man. I'm, I loved Ricky Dyson as a player. So that, that goal he kicked, I always point to that as, as him being some sort of Dick Reynolds, Billy Hutchinson, James Hurd rolled into one genius. Um, but... I think actually 2016 was actually, for me, a really good Anzac day. I actually went to that game and obviously we turned up. We knew we weren't going to win and it was still just a really good day. I mean, Eston fans, knowing that we weren't going to win, were probably a lot more relaxed than normal. Um, so it was, it was and, and, and the Collingwood fans as well weren't, the ones in my area anyway, um, and I, I was sitting in, in the MCC, so we, I don't have the Joffa-style Collingwood fans sitting around me in the MCC. They just, it was just a good atmosphere. Everyone knew what the result was going to be, but we just, we were there and we had fun and we enjoyed it, even though we lost. So so for me, I really liked the 2016 game, which might be a little bit weird, but it was more about the experience for me than what actually happened on the field. Yeah. 2009's obviously, you know, the Zaharakis goal. I remember watching it live and losing my mind. Um, but uh, the, I have two mind, I have two games. For me, it's t- first is 2017. So that was the first Anzac day I actually attended live. And that was the year, obviously, after the suspensions. And we won that game. Um, and I just remember, you know, Doe Danaher won the Anzac Day medal. And it was just, I, I re- the first time I, I sort of saw hope and believed in the team after 2016, Collingwood are a good side and uh, we sort of put them to the sword. It was an excellent quality game, but just I think being there live was fun. But the one that always st- sticks in my head, this might be the deep cut, is 2005 and the arrival of Andrew Lovett, who was a relative unknown going into that year. 
But he won the Anzac Day medal. I think he had like 25 and five, absolutely cut Collingwood to pieces. I remember watching that game as a younger guy, as a sort of, you know, in primary school and just being amazed at this kid absolutely tear Collingwood apart. And we know how prodigiously talented Andrew Lovett was as a footballer. Obviously, he has had sort of off-field personal and legal issues, which we don't need to sort of elaborate on too much. But I just remember seeing Andrew Lovett play at full flight for the first time on Anzac Day and going, wowzers. Amusingly, he didn't get the three votes. Heard got the three votes, but that was that was that, <laughs> that was that sort of three or four year period where you know, James Heard just had to turn up on Anzac Day, and he, he seemingly got the three votes. Um, <laughs> there was there was a period there. I actually think I actually think he won. He was going for his third medal in a row. Um, yeah, when, yeah. When when Lovett took it off him, so and of course. It, I think it maybe even Mark McGough played well that game. He did have that one where he won the medal, and then there was another Anzac Day. Maybe that was 2004. Mark McGough played another absolute blinder on Anzac Day, and even though Collingwood lost, so there has been some interesting characters bob up on Anzac Day, and Andrew Lovett definitely was one. And he was probably a little stiff in 2009 um, when when Paddy Ryder won the medal to maybe not get the medal himself. Mm. Um, but oh, oh, I mean, I think 2009. Um, Paddy was always going to get it because obviously that was the game when when Hill did his knee and uh, we discovered that that Patrick Ryder was a, who had played ruck as a junior was not a centre half back and should be continued to play it in the ruck. <laughs> yes, yeah, that um, that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? Um, Essendon players played out of out of position for the first yeah, five well, years of their exactly career. Right. <laughs> that, that's a that's an off season podcast topic. That's a that's a mini series. But um, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about this week. Um, because it is a big game. Both teams in the top four, Essendon obviously sitting second with Collingwood sitting third. Um, I think we might be on top of the ladder, uh, higher than the ladder, but I think most people would have Collingwood as a favourite despite a significant list of outs for them. So Taylor Adams is out at this point, but I think we would all agree that that is subject to change. Um, McStay is out. I think they're going to miss Nathan Murphy from concussion protocols what's your preliminary view of this game bond in terms of our prospects as a club and also how you might see it playing out yeah it's going to be tough let's let I me mean, let's be honest uh, we beat melbourne that's really great on form though obviously i think collingwood are another level yep um brisbane did give him a touch-up and i think that collingwood's forward running pressure style can be exposed the way Brisbane did because the Pies swarmed to the ball. So they get a lot of players at the ball. They, they, they Their defenders push up really, really deep. And if you can get over the back of them, like uh, Brisbane did with Charlie Cameron, Link McCarthy, Cam Rayner, et cetera, you can expose them. And I, and I think whilst, you know, we don't have the, the mercurial player like a Charlie Cameron, I think we have a Link. I think we have the Link McCarthy's. I think we have the Cam Rayner style of player that we can probably do the same thing to them. So so I think they're a better side than us, but I don't think we're without hope because I think if if Nick Dacos, who was on Charlie Cameron and didn't pay any attention to him and, and was a large reason why they lost, even though he got you know, 36 touches or whatever it was, mm. if he does the same thing to a Will Snelling or a Kyle Langford or an Archie Perkins, they're going to burn him the other way. They're absolutely going to burn him the other way. So... Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be tough, but I don't think we're without hope. Yeah, it's interesting because the way Collingwood play is almost opposite to, say, Melbourne. So Melbourne play this game, but they'll seed you 
the ground ball in the contested position, particularly at clinicism around the ground, so they can set up their zone behind the football. Collingwood play the opposite, where they sort of play this swarm mentality where if the ball hits the ground at anywhere on the field, they swarm there in numbers and they turn a one-on-one into a two-on-three, into a, a four-on-six, into whatever. And Brisbane got them, and St Kilda got them at points because they were just clean in those moments and were able to win enough sort of four-on-fives you know, three on fours as the under the man team to basically make Quayner and, and Dacos more accountable on the back end. And you're right, Nick Dacos had a big game against Brisbane, but his direct opponent, I think, at different points was Link McCarthy and Cam Rayner, who had their own great games in those matches. And even on the weekend, um, I think Dacos had 42 and two and St. Kilda and Collingwood only just scraped by. So I think a lot gets said about Nick Dacos and his numbers. And I suppose Collingwood just goes the equation if we can get you know five goals generated from nick dacos and he coughs up three from his direct opponent we're still at a two goal benefit so you just play the numbers on the game and extrapolate them i, I think you have to tag him though and i think will snelling's a man for the job you know assuming the suspension of merit stands at the moment you mentioned ben hobbs coming in as a like-for-like replacement do you see any other changes sam wiedemann will be back from concussion protocols but as i said earlier i'm not sure he gets Depends in with that with our dual ruck setup depends on Harry Jones. To be yep. honest, it depends on how how that how that ankle is. Um, I have no idea what it's like. It, it didn't look great. Um, I think sure. Zerk's probably going to be okay because he he came back on and was fine. Well, not fine, but he played through the game. So you'd imagine that with a ten day break, Zerk will get up. Yeah. So I, I, look, I, I probably don't bring Wiedemann in at the moment because yeah, you, you bring him in, we take out a a stringer Langford Perkins style player oh. from the forward line and and I don't like that. I think that's a bad idea. Would um, we would Wiedemann not just be the straight in for Jones though if they wanted to maintain the same structure? Oh no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So if Jones if Jones doesn't play then Wiedemann's straight in. But 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 if Jones plays right, then yeah, Wiedemann okay. comes in. Then, yeah, yeah. Then you know he's replacing one of those medium guys. And with the form they're in, is it worth upsetting that? I don't think no. it is. No. Um and then yeah, I suppose. I mean, the other only other question I would probably ask is who does Heppel go on because they are very mm. fleet of foot. Yeah. So who who does he actually play on? And and so I, his form is really good at the moment for the last two weeks. Been great. Um, you and I have talked before. We're big Heppel fans, but is there a matchup for him this week? Mm. I, I would. I don't know that answer. I reckon he might be the sub. Um, because I, I have the same query you do about his ability to match up defensively. I think as the game gets on and players get tired, he'll probably be able to keep up a bit more, which is when you sort of bring him in, on bring him on halfway through um, or you know, halfway through the third quarter. And he's diverse enough that he can probably play wing, a little bit of midfield defence. Um, he can cover a lot of positions, which is helpful. And you could probably just bring Hind in to play his role as a defender. And we know Hind yeah. has the pace to do it. Absolutely. So so I, I think, yeah, that's probably the easiest thing is you swap Hind for for Heppel. Heppel's a sub. You know, if if Merritt stays out, then Ben Hobbs comes in. And if Jones isn't fit, you probably bring in Wiedemann. Otherwise, you don't really want to be changing a team too much that just beat Melbourne by, what is it, five goals <laughs> if you don't have to. No, no, you're right. I, I mean, the, the other thing with Heppel being sub is, is if Zach doesn't play, and Ben Hobbs, for example, starts to get tied in that midfield. As you said, you know, it's not the best solution, 
but Dyson Heppel could, could easily go into the midfield for a quarter and a half and just bust his gut um, and then maybe even run with, you know, Scott Penderbury because Scott Penderbury's not going to burn him the other way because obviously Penderbury's got time and space, but he doesn't have speed. So I think Heppel could easily close that, that time yeah. and space down. Or, or Heppel goes forward and you send Cordwell into midfield, or you send yeah, Heppel that to, too. You yeah. send Heppel to the wing and and Martin or Durham play more midfield time. Like there's ways yeah, around exactly. it with Heppel as a sub, which I think works. And you're not going to crucify him defensively by putting him in the back six. So I suppose the question is then: uh, with seven ga- with seven days out, a lot of variables um, as we've discussed. I suppose the question is: what's your tip, <laughs> and by what margin? Yeah, so in the margin thread, I've gone Essendon by 25 again because it worked so well last week. And I actually I think I've done that every week so far, so I'm just going to keep doing it. But, yeah, look, seriously, I my heart says Essendon, my head says Collingwood because I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I think Draper and Phillips will get on top of Billy Frampton a lot more than Rowan Marshall did. I was appalled at how badly Rowan Marshall did at times against Billy Frampton, who is not a Ruckman's arsehole. So I think we could probably win the centre bat, the battle of the middle. I think that we have the forward line that can counteract Collingwood's defence. Um, so I'll, I'll look, I'll tip us and say, you know, Essendon by two to three goals. No, well, every time I tip Essendon this year, we lose, which is a one time, which is St Kilda. And considering I tip Melbourne by 27 and that's what we won by, I'm tipping Essendon by 50. <laughs> no, um, so I'm, I'm probably picking... Uh, uh, Collingwood by uh, probably five goals as well. I think four to five goals is probably reasonable. I think they're going to be better prepared for the two-ruck system considering what happened against Brisbane um, when they had McInerney and Fort. And so I think um, they might better work a way around that. But I think it's been a lot closer than what it has, what it probably looked like at the start of this year. Okay, well, that probably wraps us up for this week. Thank you for listening, everyone. And thank you, Bonds, for joining. Been a pleasure as always. No worries. And as always, uh, please tell your friends, like, subscribe, and um, pass us along to all the other Bomber supporting fans. Uh, go Bombers and uh, have a great weekend. <laughs>